0: All right, let's open our Bibles this morning. We're in Jeremiah chapter six as we study that great Old Testament major prophet. Jeremiah chapter six, verses one through 30 is our text. The topic we find there, God appoints Jeremiah an assayer to test Judah just as you would precious metals. And so the title of our message is, Need I Assay More? Let's have a word of prayer Uh, I was trying to work dodo in there somewhere, but it just didn't fit. Father, thanks for our morning. We appreciate the worship. You've given us such great songs. Uh, That's because you're a great God and worthy of our praise. Uh, I pray, Lord, that our hearts now are open and uh, ready to receive your word, that we humble ourselves now, Lord, to pray and realize that we need to hear from you. Uh, Lord, that it's your voice that we want in our hearts telling us, Lord, first of all, how much you love us, what you've done for us, uh, Lord, motivating us to do things for you from that love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees, said, amen. This week, I downloaded a free app called How Do Others See You? After answering about 10 questions, I was labeled Well Balanced. The app told me, and I proudly quote, this is a quote, this is you know, from my app. People think you're the perfect friend. They love you. <coughs> they consider you are a funny and lovely person. You mix the right ingredients for an ideal friend. Gosh, it brought a tear to my eye. I was feeling pretty good about that until I came across a research paper ominously titled Flawed (laughs) Self-Assessment. It stated the following. Research suggests that self-assessments of character are flawed in substantive and systematic ways. People's self-views hold only a tenuous to modest relationship with their actual behavior. On average, people overestimate the likelihood they will engage in desirable behavior and achieve favorable outcomes. And they reach judgments with too much confidence. Now the researchers in that study were from Cornell, Stanford, and the University of Iowa, and they concluded, all told, this review suggests that there is striking continuity in the errors that people make when assessing themselves, whether in the laboratory or the real world. In other words, we tend to have an inflated opinion of ourselves. I therefore deleted the app uh, and trying to get over it. Uh, now, I, was, I wasn't just goofing off. I was searching for assessment information because chapter 6 of the book of Jeremiah is about a certain kind of assessment. Technically, it's about assessing by assaying. Look at verse 27. It says, I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way." The word fortress turns out to be a poor translation. The Hebrew word means cutting as if to separate something and that would match up better with the work of an assayer, which is to assess the quality of precious metals by separating what is pure from the impurities using various means. First, God gave the people a chance to assay themselves and then he told Jeremiah to give them his assessment. Now, we are likewise told in the Bible to assay ourselves. For example, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, the Apostle Paul said, a man ought to examine himself. He was talking about doing that before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And then in Galatians 6, 4, he said, uh, you should each one examine your own work. We know too that the Lord at his appearing will examine our lives. In Revelation twenty two twelve. he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Like a good assayer, the Lord will put our lives and works to fire so that only what is precious and pure will remain to enter heaven. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Bible says, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Hard as it may be, we are to constantly examine ourselves in anticipation of the Lord's final examination. I'll organize my thoughts this morning around two questions. Number one, when was your last assessment of the way you are on? And number two, what is God's loving assessment of the way you are on? Uh, The bulk of the chapter, verses 1 through 26, has to do with our last assessment. Now, our verses are the conclusion of Jeremiah's second sermon to the nation of Judah. The book opens with a series of 12, maybe 13 separate sermons. This is the end of sermon number two. God, in his love for them, continued to encourage their repentance. He enjoined them. Look at verse 16. He said, stand in the ways and see, ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, then you will find rest for your souls. In other words, compare the way you are on with the way you should be going as a believer, examine yourself, assay your walk. And so as we work through these verses, we're going to be looking for some hints or tips as to how we might properly assay our lives. And so, verse 1: O oh, you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Beth Hasserem, for disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. God warned them as if the invasion was imminent. We know from history it was still 40 years away. No one would be able to say God had not given them ample time to repent. You know, one of the criticisms of God by non-believers, we read it in uh, 2 Peter, they say, well, where's the promise of his coming? You say that the Lord is coming, where, where is this coming that you speak of? Everything seems to be going on just like it always has. And uh, only a person who doesn't understand the extent of God's judgment would say that. God is delaying his coming in judgment so that none would perish but that all would come to eternal life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, who's that calling me? (laughs) Saving me from this evangelistic moment right now. Uh, I don't know. Answer it and see. But uh, anyway, maybe you're thinking that and uh, the thing about it is I have no idea where my dodo brain is now. But anyway... (laughs) So you're thinking, yeah, I don't see you keep talking about the Lord coming. Gene, in fact, Gene, you've been, so I came to Calvary Chapel when you were at the Y 20 years ago, and you were talking about the return of the Lord. Okay, so with the Lord, one day is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He doesn't reckon time the way we do. And if you're not saved, he, maybe he's waiting for you to quit fooling with your phone. And... Uh, Anyway, you you get the idea. So God gets blamed for waiting for delaying in judgment or if something happens in the world that we don't like, then he gets blamed as if it was his judgment. God can't win for losing when all the time he's reaching out to lost human beings, uh, stretching out his arms, as it were, from the cross and saying, come to me and I will save you. Verse two, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Now, many Bible translators suggest that instead of lovely and delicate woman, the Hebrew words are better rendered land or pasture, and they think that the Jewish nation is being compared to pleasant and delightful lands and pastures which are inviting to shepherds to come and pitch their tents about them. And that seems likely to me, I don't understand languages, but if scholars say that, it seems likely, especially because of what you read in verse 3, the shepherds with their flock shall come to her, they shall pitch their tents against her all around, each one shall pasture in his own place. Now before you think that God has interjected a beautiful pastoral image here, uh, don't let this tranquil imagery fool you. It means that where cities used to be, pastures have replaced them and shepherds with their flocks now occupy them. It anticipates that Judah has been destroyed, overthrown and the people removed and that now it's just pasture land where there was once a thriving population. Uh, and so w- one of the things that God does, especially through Jeremiah He employs every possible uh, literary device and illustration and metaphor and simile and type so that no one can misunderstand what he's saying. When the judgment finally comes, when Babylon comes over the hill and over the wall and through the gates, no one's going to be able to say, man, I didn't see that coming. Because God explains himself over and over again. Verse four, prepare war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us for the day goes away for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. A night attack was unusual but particularly terrifying. And so the Lord is kind of talking to them about when the Babylonians come and they're going to be making their preparations. It's going to get late in the day, but instead of waiting for the morning, they're so pent up to attack Jerusalem, they're going to attack them at night. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I still am afraid of the dark. Why do you get under the covers? Uh, do you have like Kevlar covers or what? You know, do you ever, oh, if I get under the covers, you know, I'll be okay. But, uh, you know, uh, darkness, is, it just it accentuates everything weird. Uh, And especially in those times, you know, there's no street lights per se. They only have these crazy little oil lamps that give off just a little bit of light. And um, imagine a terrifying army pent up with its frustration coming through the city at night, just murdering and killing everything. That's the picture that God has painted for them. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Cut down trees, build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel, as a grape gatherer. Put your hand back into the branches. Now, this reference to the remnant of Israel is another way of identifying the nation of Judah. The history here, you remember, the uh, ten, Israel, the nation of Israel split in two after Solomon. Ten tribes to the north were called Israel, two tribes to the south were called Judah. Uh, Israel in the north had been destroyed and overrun and taken captive by the Assyrians about 200 years prior to this. All that remained now in the land was Judah. And so God is saying, you are the remnant, but you are not going to be spared. It's gonna be like a second harvest. Uh, The grape uh, harvest already took place in the north, as it were, I took my people Israel, now I'm coming back for you if you don't repent. Verse 10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. Their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord." Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And so the thought here is that everyone was at fault. The people couldn't blame the leaders. The leaders couldn't blame the people. Uh, Husbands couldn't blame wives. Wives couldn't blame husbands. They were all covetous and at fault. Now, this is our first significant tip regarding self-examination and things we need to look out for in order to conduct a proper uh, self-examination, blame-shifting is no help to you, spiritually speaking. You and I are responsible for our own actions and reactions despite the difficulties in our relationships or in our lives. Doesn't deny that we have tough, difficult circumstances and relationships, but we're responsible for our own reaction. Blame shifting started in the Garden of Eden. You see it very, very clearly uh, defined for you there. Adam and Eve sin. God comes into the garden. He looks at Adam. He says, Adam, you're the head. Uh, you're in charge. What happened here? Adam said, Lord, the woman you gave me. It's her fault. So the Lord looks at Eve and, she, and he goes, Eve, what's, what's the deal? What happened? Hey, Lord, the serpent, it's his fault. And by, you know, extension, it's your fault because all of a sudden I was talking to this crazy snake. And where did that come from? And so each one of them shifted the blame. Adam, what's the problem? It's my wife's fault. Eve, what's the problem? The devil made me do it. And I think people have been saying that for (laughs) centuries since. I see sometimes on Sunday mornings, I'll say something in your elbow, it inadvertently goes out. And then if, you know, if it's the wife or the husband, they go, like, well, I didn't mean that. So a lot of elbowing goes on. And you know what's really happening is that God would say, hey, keep your elbows to yourself. I'm elbowing you. Your wife's not the problem. She may be a problem, but she's not the problem. I have to be honest here, otherwise you won't believe me. Your husband's not the problem. He probably is a problem, but he's not the problem. And, and you see what I mean? God says, you know, you can't shift the blame. These are tough circumstances. This is a difficult situation, but how are you reacting? I'll never examine myself. I'll never find out what's going on with me if I shift the blame. God doesn't want me to do that, but we have a, there must be a gene for, for blame shifting because we do it all of the time. We always think I'd be better off, you know, in another situation and, and, um, it's not that you can't ever change or move or things like that, but there are some situations where God says, no, you're, you're in this. I don't know how many times over the years I've looked at a married couple and I'd say, you have absolutely no grounds for divorce, biblically speaking. This is insane. Why are you even talking about this? Well, we don't get along and we've tried and, you know, whatever. And yeah, there's problems, but what are you talking about? It's a blame shifting. You're saying it's, it's not my fault. I can't do this anymore. I I just don't see the liberty for that in the scriptures. Uh, And it's it's it's, it's a very serious thing. We're having a little bit of fun with it, but it's very serious. Now, verse 14. They have also healed the herd of my people, slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Tip number two. We need to maintain a sensitivity to things God calls sin. It's not easy because the world systematically erodes holiness in favor of sin. We tend as believers to remain holier than the world by comparison, and we think that we're doing okay, but have we actually moved away from the Lord? Have we relaxed our standards, having been influenced by the world? That's the real question. It doesn't matter if I'm better than the world. Of course I'm going to be better than the world. Wouldn't you expect that? Uh, you, you know, I mean that's a given. The question is have I fallen from a previous standard that the Lord set up or that I set up? And and what's the reason? I'll grant that maybe I become a Christian at a, you know, in my adult life, and, and I will grant maybe, maybe I overreact to certain things and I become legalistic and I think, oh, this is, you know, this certain thing, this is a mark of real Christianity. And over time, I realize you know, um, let's take the area of how we dress. I, I hate to use examples because everybody's got their own. But, you know, maybe I get into this whole thing about certain items of clothing, and I say, a Christian, can't wear that, and you have to wear this all the time. You can't, blah, blah, blah. I can't cut your hair, you, you know, whatever, and stuff. And then I realize, you know, this is a little bit legalistic, you know. I just, you know, but then if I go way over the other side and I become totally immodest in the way I dress, and, and I'm, you know, really not, you know, if people look at me and they think, wow, you know, is that really Christ-like? Uh, maybe I've relaxed my standards too much. And I think we can do that. And so that's what this, God saying, hey, my people don't even blush anymore at sin. Things that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago would have been shameful, would have caused everybody to turn away. Now they're watching it. They're going after it. I know the world is worse, but how bad are we? And so that's the idea. And so if I'm going to examine myself, I need to, under, I need to wonder what makes me blush. And is have I really relaxed my standards because I'm more mature or because I'm not paying attention to my walk? Now let's skip verse 16 for a moment, get to verse 17 where it says, "'Also I set watchmen over you, saying, "'Listen to the sound of the trumpet.' They said, "'We won't listen.'" Therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth. Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. Judah clung to the false hope that God would not allow his city and his temple to be destroyed. They had lost sight of the spiritual and they were trusting in the material. Didn't bother them that Israel had been overrun because Israel... Uh, you know, Samaria was their capital. They didn't really have a temple. They had Jerusalem. They had the temple. They felt even if things got bad, God would finally protect them and not let those things be destroyed. They were wrong. Now, another tip for you here in this section, you see the phrase, the fruit of their thoughts. And that means how they were behaving was the result of what they'd been thinking about. Only you know what it is that you think about and uh, whether or not it's godly. Uh, We have a tendency to uh, let our mind wander when the Bible says, let's bring our thoughts captive to Christ and try and have a disciplined mind. Think on things that are pure and lovely. Uh, Be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those kinds of things. Verse 20. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. The people were still worshiping God in the temple. In fact, they were bringing very costly gifts. But God was not interested in ritual. He wanted a relationship verse 21 therefore thus says the lord behold i will lay stumbling blocks before this people and the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them the neighbors and his friend uh, the neighbor excuse me and his friend shall perish thus says the lord behold a people comes from the north country and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth they will hold bow and spear they are cruel and have no mercy their voice roars like the sea and they ride on horses as men of war set in array against you o daughter of zion we have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is of a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. O oh, daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation for the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. They are once again warned of an imminent invasion even though it was decades away. The idea is that they ought to act quickly to repent. And that's another great tip uh, during our self-examination. Act upon the things the Lord reveals. Act quickly. Don't let time pass to dull your sensitivities. And I think this happens a lot. I know it happens in my life. I think this is why listening to the word of God taught, whether it's a tape or the radio or a live setting like this can be so powerful because during that time, the Holy Spirit is at work ministering to our hearts, showing us things from the text itself, hearing things that are being said. A lot of times you're hearing things that are not being said. I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me over the years and said, you know, when you were talking about X, Y, Z, that really ministered to me. And I've kept to myself that I never mentioned that, you know, at all. And I think what happens is that people are, you're sitting there and you're reading and all of a sudden you space out a little bit and you think you're hearing, and you were just hearing from the Lord. And the Lord is ministering to you directly through his spirit. And it's not something that's in my notes or that is off page, it's just the Lord talking to us. But we need to act upon those things. I, I, I think we need to realize that uh, we, we, we mean well. I mean, Okay, Lord, thank you for sharing that with me. In a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years, I'll, I'll attend to that. And, and if we don't act on what the Lord is telling us, we, we just don't act on it. And then he has to keep telling us and keep telling us. And after a while, you kind of get dull of hearing, don't you, if you keep hearing the same thing over and over again? And so... Act quickly when the Lord is ministering to you. As I said earlier, it's not you nudging someone else, it's the Lord nudging you and I and saying it's you, Gene, I'm talking about. You're the one that has this uh, situation going on. Uh, Here's how I want you to deal with that. Do it. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways, go back to verse 16, excuse me. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls, but they said, we will not. Now, their situation was described as a journey they were on, which required a choice of paths. It's sort of an Old Testament way of saying there's a narrow gate that leads to eternal life, but a broad path that leads to destruction. God saved you and set you on his path. As we journey home, where we find there is a broad way we can choose or refuse. It's a day-by-day thing, sometimes even moment-by-moment. Three tools for assaying myself to see which path I'm on. Number one, what am I thinking about? Number two, have I become desensitized to the things I once called sin? And number three, am I shifting the blame for my actions and attitudes to my circumstances or to other people? And then after I've done that assessment, I ask, do I act on what God has revealed? Do I actually make the adjustments or changes that he recommends? I should act quickly, asking for the old paths where the good way is, walking in that, finding rest for my soul. Now, verses 27 through 30, what is God's loving assessment of the way you're on? Verse 27, I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. Remember, fortress, poor translation, It's more like Jeremiah was an assayer, and one of the techniques he would employ was to cut or to separate what was pure from the dross. Here's a textbook description of an assayer's work. An assayer separates metals or other components from dross materials by solution, flotation process, or other liquid processes, or by dry methods such as application of heat in furnaces to form slags of lead, borax, and other impurities. Residues may be weighed on a balance to determine any proportion of precious metals or other components. The illustration we most normally use is that of the gold or silver being heated over a flame in a crucible to separate that which is pure from the impurities. What was the result of Jeremiah's assay? Verse 28 They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows be, uh, blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. And so uh, the, God keeps turning up the heat, as it were, looking for silver. But all he finds in his people is dross. There's nothing precious in them. Have you ever had the experience of finding out something you thought was real and valuable was actually a worthless imitation? It's no fun. I remember years ago when we were smuggling Bibles into China. Uh, you know the the and maybe it's still. This way today, but everybody said, "Oh, you know, you're going to have to, you to be in Hong Kong. You have to go to Hong Kong to get into China. And man, you can buy anything in Hong Kong for just dirt cheap. You know, electronics and jewelry, and I mean that—that's the place to go. And so I thought, well, it's pretty cool. You know, I'd like to like to get my wife some pearls. That'd be wonderful. I get some really nice pearls over in Hong Kong. You know, for a tenth of the price that I could pay here. So I went to see a, a local jeweler." I wasn't completely stupid. Uh, I went to see a local jeweler. I wanted to know, how do you, how do you tell you know, what a good pearl is? And, and so he was, as soon as I mentioned to him I was going to Hong Kong, he started to laugh. And I said, what's so funny? He goes, he goes, at least once a week, I get some poor sailor in here who's been to Hong Kong and they've got their engagement ring that they bought. It's a $10,000 ring that they got for a thousand bucks in Hong Kong and they want me to put it into another setting, and I have to reveal to them that the setting is more costly than the diamond because it's not a diamond. It's not even a cubic zirconia. It's a piece of glass. Well, I have this certification. Go back to Hong Kong, and you'll have a certified piece of glass. You know? and, so, you know, that's, and so that's what the Lord is saying. He says, you people, you think you're silver. You think you're pure. He says, but I keep, man, I'm, I'm turning up the heat. I'm gonna bring the Babylonian army to burn you. And all that's going to be found is dross. God was having this experience, drawing that conclusion. I call this a loving assessment. So where's the love? Well, for one thing, God assesses in order that we might realize where we are at and return to him. If you don't see this as loving, if you understand what these people were doing, how far they had fallen from the Lord in their behavior, in their attitude even, the fact that God was striving with them at all was remarkable and a sign of his love he wasn't simply pointing out their faults he was testing them to purify to strengthen them to bring them back in psalm 26 verse 2 we read examine me O lord and prove me try my mind and my heart the psalmist used three words examine prove try especially the words examine and try would be words used of an assayer working with metal so it's the same idea but just to give you a kind of a, another uh, illustration, the word prove has a connotation of smelling. How do you smell to the Lord? Are you an aroma of sweet incense? The sixth century Jews were offering costly incense that smelled good, but the Lord said, when I smell you, something's rotten in Denmark. Where does that come from anyway? Anybody from Denmark afterwards, please tell me what that means. But anyway, uh, and so... Uh, you know this is the thing God making this assessment he says you're I want to find silver and I can still produce silver out of your life but you have to turn to me and so the, there's nothing that isn't loving about what God is doing and ultimately what he does to his people is a discipline not a disaster to bring them back to himself and as the history goes on we won't get to it all in, in the book of Jeremiah but 70 years of captivity in Babylon bring the people back to the Lord and bring them back to the land. And as far as commentaries and commentators go, after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews never had a problem with idolatry again. Their whole history up until this sixth century, they were idol worshipers. But after God dealt with them the way he did through the Babylonian captivity, they never had trouble with idols again. They had other trouble, believe me, and turning away from the Lord and being pharisaical and legalistic and all that, but, but God did a good thing in disciplining them. Self-examination, it's good and it's necessary, but God also conducts his own assay. How does he examine us? Well, one of the big ways, it's not the only way, but one of the big ways is by testing us through various trials and difficulties. That's why in the New Testament, uh, they're referred to as fiery trials. God turns up the heat, with the hope that impurities will rise to the surface so he can skim them away, leaving only that which is pure. I found the website of an actual four-real silversmith, and he said this. It is true that if a silversmith sees his reflection in a crucible of molten silver, that it is ready. Normally, charcoal or flux is added over the silver to absorb any oxygen away from the silver. When the impurities have been absorbed and the silversmith can see his reflection, and providing the metal hasn't been overheated, It's ready to pour. And so God, he's looking for his reflection in your life or you might say he's looking for you to reflect him to others through your life. And so we can and we should conduct our own assay using some of the tips we've discovered, trying to be as honest as possible with ourselves rather than deceiving ourselves. And then with the Lord's help, With his word before us and his spirit within us, we can approach an accurate assessment. And then to aid our assessment, God will also put us into and take us through various trials throughout our life. He will show us what's going on in our hearts, not to point out our faults, but to reveal our faith, not to punish us, but to purify us. Taken together through the course of our life, Our assay and God's assay can keep us on the old paths where the good way is to walk in them to find rest for our souls. Amen. Let's pray.